Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guest to look back over their life and pick five things from it that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. Four things they love and would wish to keep safe or have again, and one thing or event that they regret or find embarrassing and would like to bury deep in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor and writer Arabella Weir, who I'm pretty sure you'll know from the far show Posh Nosh and the brilliant comedy Two Doors Down. Her catchphrase from the far show, Does My Bum Look Big in This?, has spawned a best-selling book and a theatre show. She's also written for The Independent and The Guardian, appeared on Celebrity MasterChef, was a presenter on BBC Two's Food and Drink programme, and been the voice of the first female Doctor Who in The Doctor Who Unbound, and appeared in the 2011 Christmas special Doctor Who, The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe. So, let's find out what Arabella would like to preserve in a time capsule. And, of course, other things. I hope you enjoy our chat. Marvellous. Arabella, how lovely to have you here. And we're going to talk about five things from your life that you would like to put into a time capsule. Okay. So, um, good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, as I embark yes. on my journey. <laughs> right. So, the first thing I would put in my, this is like that game, isn't it? In my suitcase, I would pack. <laughs> you remember when you used to play that game with your kids in the car? When I go on holiday, in my suitcase, I will pack a toothbrush and then the next person, you have to remember <laughs> them all. Uh, that took us through many a car journey. Um, I would put, I wear 
some gold bracelets and some of them date back. I mean, it doesn't sound, it's not a sort of precious antique, but my father, who was a diplomat, despite his very humble upbringing in Dunfermline, so like a lot of men of that generation, thanks to the Second World War, he was posted to the Middle East. He was one of the last people because he was 18 in towards the end of the war. And he fell in love with the Middle East and became a diplomat and trained in um, his speciality was the Arab world and could speak Arabic and everything. So a lot of my youth was spent in the Middle East and my parents were still together at the time. And the people who worked maids and stuff for my mother, my mother noticed, had these very simple gold bangles. Mm. That's where they'd put their wealth, which is quite a well-known thing in Greece and the Middle East. And like some people have gold teeth, don't they, where they, they make enough money and then they have it made into something. And so my mother started buying them. They were very cheap in the early 60s. Mm. And then when my dad, uh, they split up and my father went back to Egypt as the ambassador and I would go and visit him by this time I was a young adult, I would buy them. So some were my mother's, some were my stepmother's, who also is now dead, and some are mine. And they are very precious to me. They're not particularly valuable, Mm. but they're very precious, and I never, ever, 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 ever take them off. Really? So to put them in the time capsule, they'd have to take my arm off (laughs) and put my arm into the time capsule as well. We could just wrap it round your arm. And you'll carry it with you. That'll be all right. Exactly. It'll be in there. And so are there little gold bangles on a chain? Not on a chain. They're plain gold bangles that you wear on your wrist. Oh, right. Which if you go to Cairo in particular, but you do see it all over the Middle East, the richer you are, the more elaborate. Because certainly in Cairo, but most of the Middle East, you don't pay for gold. You pay for the workmanship. Yeah. So... To show that you're rich, the more elaborately decorated a bracelet is or, or worked or twisted or, you know, in some way decorated, the richer people will know you are because you only pay for the weight of the gold. So obviously the plainer the bangle, the less appealing it is to people who want people to know they're wealthy. Mm. So you mainly see the fellahin, as it's called in Arabic, the peasants, with very plain beaten gold, I mean, like a big gold wedding ring. Mm. And they wear them on their wrists. And then, depending on how well they're doing, they stack them up both arms, a bit like those rings you see around some tribes in Africa's necks. I haven't got that many. But (laughs) um, I only ever liked the plain ones. I didn't like the worked ones at all. You didn't want Um, to show off your wealth. I didn't want to show off my wealth, just with a few gold bangles, but no showing off of wealth (laughs) here. It's a very working class thing that I think actually wearing your wealth. You'd carry that gold with you and if you needed money, you could pawn it for a while and then buy it back. I was also going to say, wouldn't it be a kind of security thing? Because rather than working class, if your sort of home wasn't secure, if you were in rented Mm. accommodation, you'd want everything you owned, you know, in your mouth or on your wrist or on your fingers. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it's also, isn't it, just like a Louis Vuitton handbag, just so that people will know what you've got? Uh, A little bit, Look at me, I've got a handbag that costs a 1,000 quid or whatever those handbags cost. I suppose so. My my aunt, uh, she had a gold bracelet, but you would buy these little things like uh, a horseshoe or a, a dog. Ah, oh, but that's a charm bracelet. A charm bracelet, yeah. Look at you, you're showing that you're a gent 
or rather a man, um, because the fact is the charm bracelet is an entirely different thing okay. to a simple gold bangle. But yes, those, so that's my first thing to put in the time capsule. So how many have you got now? Eleven. One was given to me. Actually, the only one that isn't from the Middle East is the one that my stepmother, who I adored, gave to me on my 21st birthday. And it's very beaten up but it's still on my wrist. And uh, I keep telling my children much that they hate this sort of conversation. How I can't imagine why. Uh, I keep saying, so when I die, you're going to have to get those bracelets off my arm. And I said, but make sure you do. Don't bury me with them or burn me. Well, you, people would be digging you up if you got them on your arm. Yes, like the um, Tutankhamun, grave robbers. Yeah. Well, all right, then. We'll put those lovely little gold bangles. I think they're really quite classy, actually. I mean, I think you did the right thing not going down the intricate route. I know I did. I've got excellent taste, I don't mind saying. <laughs> All right. Well, that excellent taste will be on full show inside the time capsule. So that's your first item, Arabella. What's number two? Number two is it's jewellery again. I think the thing is the things I've chosen I'm slightly sort of stupidly imagining that I will find the time capsule rather than someone else, but then the time capsule is mine after all. Yeah. The person I knew as my granny, both my parents were Scots, and they both came from pretty sort of severe, sort of classic Presbyterian backgrounds. But the person I knew as my granny was actually my mother's stepmother, mm. and she was a very warm, loving person, unlike either of my parents' families. And she left me her engagement ring, which was very ugly and of its time, 40s, and very sort of conventional. And I had it remade into a more modern and wearable ring. And it's got a very pink and very lovely ruby. And I wear it all the time, even though my hands are getting old and craggy. <laughs> and I look at my jewellery on my hands and I think, oh, do I really want to see jewellery? So it's a modern piece but with a very old stone mm. and uh, it's very beautiful. And the person who finds my time capsule or at this rate, the gang of robbers who find my time capsule um, <laughs> will be very pleased to have it because yes. it's a contemporary piece, but with a very, very old twist. And it's a thing of great beauty. And it's done by the jeweler Daphne Krinos. And she reworked it into something very wearable because Granny's engagement ring was sort of like the, the sort of thing you'd expect the Queen to wear, just totally unwearable nowadays. Mm. So did you visit them often in Scotland? Well, we only ever went to Scotland when we came to Britain, but I was actually, because of Dad's job, I was born in America because the Middle East was emerging and my father was a rising star, so I'm told. Obviously, I didn't know at the time. So they thought they needed a Middle East expert in the British Embassy in Washington so I was born there, and then the rest of our family life was Cairo, Bahrain, other places in the Middle East, and then my parents split up and I went to live with my dad in Bahrain. But every time we came back to the UK, we went to Scotland, mm. and we were brought up to think of ourselves as Scots, not English. I remember my parents catching me when I was about seven, saying to an Arab girl that I was English, and they shouted out, you're not English! <laughs> um, and I thought, all right... So I think of myself as Scottish culturally. I certainly don't think of myself as English. I um, suppose I'm a bit more of an international kid than anything else. But yes, uh, Scotland is what is my spiritual and cultural home. Do you remember being in Washington then? Or were you too young? 
Not very well. Uh, a few kind of episodes from Washington, but not very much. It was very much the golden years. It was the Camelot years. And my mum and dad absolutely loved it. And one of their closest friends was the Kennedy lawyer. But if only I could remember any of that. But of course, I can't because, you know, most of their friends, all of them actually, from that period lived until their 80s and 90s. So I've read books about JFK and in fact, Martin Luther King and thought there's a guy called um, Burke Marshall. And I'm like, wait a minute. And he was Martin Luther King and the Kennedy lawyer. And I thought, wait a minute, I've met him. <laughs> uh, so that was quite exciting. Yeah. But I'm afraid I don't remember anything of the Camelot years, if only. But glamorous, so going then going off and sort of spending the time in the Middle East as a teenager. Well, isn't it, you know, everybody thinks, Mike, you know, when they, you sort of tell them, or they go, oh, that's so glamorous. But you see, changing schools every two years is not glamorous for a child. No. And a child isn't going, oh, look, we're going to the youngest president of America's, you know, garden party or whatever went on. You're just going, why can't I go to the same school? Why can't I make friends? Especially if your parents have a very troubled marriage. Mm. No, I remember starting school in London because they'd split up. It was the first school I knew I was going to stay at when I was 11, secondary school, and just thinking, thank God. I mean, I wasn't, my home life was already pretty turbulent by that time because my mother had some issues. Um, but I made my mark at school and was absolutely delighted to be able to do so. Yeah. Uh, so, no, it, it sounds glamorous. And, of course, it is glamorous in the retelling, but it isn't really glamorous when you're a kid. No. You know, it's like saying, I mean, a, a sort of 10-year-old will enjoy first class, not that, by the way, as British diplomats, we ever flew first class. But, um, <laughs> but you know, a three-year-old's not going to go, yay, we're in uh, first class. They're just going like, oh. So... It sounds glamorous, but it wasn't glamorous. I'd have given anything to be at the local primary school and staying there and having my friends and then, you know, going to the same place and seeing my grandparents and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then finally, after all these years, you get to use that Scottish influence on you. You get to use the accent. It's not the first time I've been in Scottish things. I'm recognised as a Scot by a lot of people mm. in the Scottish uh TV and film industry. So I've used my Scottish accent a few times, but yes, I am employing actually my Dunfermline granny's accent in Two Doors Down, which I absolutely love doing. And I love being in Scotland and I love shooting up there and I love being with everyone there. And it, yes, it feels, I've got a lot of friends in Scotland too and quite a lot of family still there. So it's very nice. Yes, it's very nice indeed. Yes, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? When something like that actually really does catch. Something that you love, and you're doing it, and you think to yourself, well, I really love doing this, and I love the characters, and it makes me laugh a lot. I hope other people do. Yes, and as you and I both well know, you can never tell. You no. you make something, you think this is a real corker, and then everyone goes, eh, no, not so much. Uh, but that actually doesn't happen. I think we've all got good instincts. You also make things, don't you, when you think, this is so bad. <laughs> uh, and then it is that bad. Yep. Uh, and you've done it for the money. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to put that into the time capsule for you. Because my hand will be in there because I'll have the ring on it and my bracelet. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're on to my third, aren't we? We are on to number three, yes. The family folklore mm -hmm. says, in fact, I can show it to you, obviously not if you're listening to the podcast, no. but there it is. My mother's parents ran a small boys' boarding school in... Melrose in the borders of Scotland. Right. Uh, about a mile and a half 
if that, away from Abbotsford, which, as all Scots will know, was the home of Sir Walter Scott. And before it was given by his either nieces or sisters, I can't remember, to the National Trust of Scotland, Mm. after his death, it was cared for by what we call in Scotland a factor, a sort of old caretaker. They don't have to be old, but a sort of caretaker come sort of guard, whatever. Mm. And he was a drunk. (laughs) And so in the 1910s and 20s, when he needed money for drink, he would drag things out onto the high road from the house and sell them to passers-by. And this is Walter Scott's travelling writing desk. Good Lord. Which my grandmother bought in 1922 (laughs) from him for five shillings. And it's... Now worth... Well, it'd be... It'd be hard to to prove. I mean, we know it's true because my grandmother told my mother and my mother told us and my mother left it to me. Mm. Um, I mean, I dare say a Walter Scott aficionado could verify that, but it's a rather beautiful, not, not actually very well made. I'm looking at it now. But it is, what is it, sort of, I suppose, mid-19th century mm. and just a rather fine thing and it's very much reminds me of my grandparents' home and my mother's home in Scotland. And, of course, it's Sir Walter Scott's. And the the thing that always makes me laugh is to say it's a travelling writing desk. It takes two, <laughs> two hefty young men to move it three inches across the room. And you think, well, I suppose in his day it'd be all punker wallers yes. um, dragging it around for you or drunken factors. <laughs> um, but it's a really beautiful piece it's not in very good condition, I have to confess. But uh, I think it would be interesting to find because I think, you know, we have such a sort of interest in fast disposable stuff now. I think mm. finding nice bits of furniture. And a writing desk. I mean, that thing of sitting down and writing longhand. And writing Ivanhoe. Mm. I mean, Ivanhoe was probably written on this very desk. Almost certainly. Have you checked all the drawers very, very carefully? Yes, I've checked all the drawers. There's nothing, there's no thing saying, Dear Arable Aware, when you find this, remember me. <laughs> uh, my mother has left a note in it saying this was bought by my mother for five shillings on the high road outside Melrose from the factor of Abbotsford. I did meet a Walter Scott expert researcher thing and sent mm. him photos and he said, yes, it is. Wow. Uh, I don't know how he'd know, though. I don't know, maybe it's in a portrait or a painting or something. Oh, I suppose so. I'll have to look into that. I'm ashamed to say I've never even been to Abbotsford, despite having driven past it nine million times. It's minimally furnished, I have to say. I've been there. Oh, have you been there? There's hardly anything in there. I thought, well, this man lived a very Spartan life. But now I know that a factor flogged the lot. It's all gone. The place was rammed full of furniture. Have you been there because you did the borders? No, I'm lying. I've never been there. I thought, I thought, I think Mike's making this up. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the Borders Book Festival, which Mm. is very, very good fun, goes on in Melrose. And uh, I think, no, you can't stay at Abbotsford. I mean, it's a National Trust place. But yes, Melrose is a lovely place, about 30 miles outside Edinburgh. Well, they might hear this. And I think the National Trust would be very interested in putting that writing desk back. They can't have it back now. They can't have it, too late. No. It's got a thing in there saying that your grandmother bought it. Exactly. Yeah. They'd have to pay a great deal more than five shillings, I think. I don't think I'd sell it, though. No. 
No, I don't. I mean, blame. I suppose if someone said half a million quid or something, I might. Say <laughs> yeah. that, but we've all got our price. What's the? Uh, was it not Somerset Maugham? Bernard Shaw. Ah. They're talking about how much they'd pay for a woman, and someone says she's so beautiful, I'd pay a thousand pounds a night. And Lady Ottoline, somebody or rather, whoever says, "Oh well, for that money, then I'd sleep with you." And he says, "Will you give me a go for a shilling?" And she says, "What do you take me for?" And he says, "We've established what you are. We're just haggling over the price." <laughs> um, you can always think of those remarks five minutes afterwards, can't you? Yes, we're always doing it after the event. <laughs> Particularly when you've had a sort of encounter in traffic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yes. well, well, that writing desk, Arabella, that's a beautiful writing desk, and we're going to put it into the time capsule. You see, we can put anything in there. Uh, in fact, you can keep the ring in one drawer and the bangles in another. Exactly. Lovely. So, what's number four? Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Arabella in a minute. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Arabella Weir would like to put into her time capsule. Number four, and I can assure you, my Scottish parents would say, oh, for goodness sake, I can't believe it. I mean, who do you think you are? Um, would be my book, Does My Bum Look Big In This? Very good. Because it changed my life, really, I suppose. And also it's very of its time in that it was one of the first books in which sort of women were comic leads, I suppose. Mm. And... It would be 24 years old now. And by the time the time capsules burst open, I'm absolutely confident no women will have any 
uh, body issues. There'll be no worrying about the size people are. It'll all be fine. And therefore, this book will seem like an ancient manuscript. Oh, how they'll laugh. Oh, how they'll laugh. What? <laughs> they won't even understand it. What does she mean? Does my bum look big in this? Um <laughs> Yes, it was just a big, it was a big sea change for me. We were doing the Fast Show and then someone suggested I write a book using that catchphrase, you know, with that person's mindset mm. as a central character. And I I said no the first couple of times because uh, I thought, how on earth would I write a whole book with someone whose mindset was like that until somebody pointed out that that was pretty much my mindset, um, <laughs> that my life would be perfect if I were thinner and my boobs stood up without a bra. So, yes, it means a lot to me, that book. I'm still very proud of it. I do think it's funny, if I say so myself. You see, everything I'm saying, I could just hear my dead parents going, I mean, I can't believe it. And then you said you were funny. I mean, come on. (laughs) In public. Uh, That's for others to see. (laughs) Can't believe there you are showing off. Well, it is a very funny book. And I can't believe it's that long ago that, that it was published. It was published in 1997. Mm. So 23 years. And do you know why? Because I was very pregnant with my wonderful daughter, and she was born on New Year's Eve 1997, and it had been published. And I remember doing the sort of bookshop tours. <laughs> They're probably going to be a thing of the past, aren't they? Mm. Um, heavily pregnant. And uh, I am still very proud of it. I mean, it's funny because it's like, I know you know this. Other people don't. If you, I don't know, if you're the manager of the boots in Milton Keynes, Nobody is asking you. I mean, I know you'd probably do reviews and then they go, oh, why have you not expanded the makeup department? Because that seems to, I'm sure an overlord or lady looks at that. But you and I get to sort of look at our youth and our past things and you think, <laughs> oh, that's me. Mm. So that's quite sort of weird. I mean, I haven't reread it. I'm not a total maniac. <laughs> but, you know, when you, we just did a fast show reunion thing for UK Gold and, it's just quite weird, isn't it? Being invited to look at not just your past work, but your past self. Mm. And um, you do find yourself, if you're me anyway, thinking, I'm really, really proud of that. That was a great thing, but I, I don't want to revisit it. No. Or I certainly don't want to look at myself doing no. that again. And people are constantly directing you to look at yourself again. Oh, look at this thing I found of you. I don't want to see it. I remember doing it. That's enough. Or there's that famous, an actor's life is... Who's Mike Fenton Stevens? Get me Mike Fenton Stevens. Get me someone who looks like Mike Fenton Stevens. <laughs> Who's Mike Fenton Stevens? <laughs> um, that was my career in about 10 years. And I was at Edinburgh Air train station the other day, and this lovely youngish man, I'm training to be a train guard, and I obviously realised that was a good thing, but he was doing hospitality in first class. I don't mind admitting I was in first class. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, oh, it's you. I can't believe it. Can I get a selfie? I mean, do you mind if I put it on Instagram? I mean, oh, my God, everyone's just not going to be able to believe I'm with you. So I said, of course, of course, not a problem. And he goes, oh, got my first reply. Oh, they're saying, who's that? Oh, <laughs> no. And I was thinking, now, that's the bit you don't share with me. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's the bit you don't tell me. You just go... Do you mind me putting it on my Instagram? By all means. Mm. And then uh, don't tell me, oh, that's my friend Peterson. Who's that? Thank you. You're easily knocked off that perch, aren't you, if you if you try to climb on it, I always think. I was working with a young actress and I sort of said, uh, 
you know, I mean, I, look at me, somebody my age. It's ridiculous. And they said, oh, don't be daft, Mike. You're great for somebody your age. And you looked fabulous. And, and I went, oh. And I preened myself a bit. And I, she said, well, how, how old are you now? And I said, ah, 63. And she went, oh. Oh, dear. So there we go. But, of course, I, uh, not so much you, because, of course, it's been my stock in trade, my sort of look at me self depreciation you know, my sort of, uh, you know, exaggerated self-deprecation has been very much my stock in trade. Mm. And uh, I'd literally just turned 30. I was doing a show with a lot of other girls, one of whom, I won't say who it was. In fact, I can't even remember. I can, but I can't. But to her <laughs> stock in trade, which she was very, very pretty mm. and very, very gorgeous in every possible way to look at, and um, they said, oh, we've put up makeup calls in the morning on the board. So we all went to it and I was standing next to her and I went, oh, of course I'm at 6.30 because, of course, they're going to have to take so long. It was a joke. She went, now, listen here. Don't you say that. You are a very pretty girl, OK? <laughs> and I went, thank you. That means a lot coming from you, Mrs Gorgeous. <laughs> then you slapped her. <laughs> she was bestowing me. Lovely, lovely, lucky me with some of her magic. Yes. In your own way, you're quite pretty. In your own way, you know. (laughs) He wouldn't do it now, but I remember being on an aeroplane and a man saying to me, do you know what? Man sitting next to me, unsolicited, I might add, (laughs) said, "Um, do you know what? If you you put a bit of makeup on, you wouldn't be half bad. Oh, my God. Uh, And that is one of those situations uh, where I managed to finesse my wit and I said yes but that would be only if I was trying to get blokes like you yeah and uh, that's very much not the case thanks and is it possible to fly without a parachute (laughs) no Uh, we'd soon find out yeah the question I wanted to ask you about that book which always has interested me is when I look back at those times female comedians were given very little regard uh yeah yeah you're kind of preaching to the converted yeah I know I know but did that suddenly give you status? Did people go, oh, I didn't know you could do that? Because their assumption about all women, it seems to me, was that, that actually they were never going to be able to do what men did. Well, funnily enough, and you and I share a sadly died young friend, Jeffrey Perkins. Mm-hmm. He was the producer of The Fast Show. And as you know, Jeffrey was not particularly macho, but he was very good at his job and he knew what he was doing and he was a well-seasoned comedy producer. Mm-hmm. And um, when the success of the character on The Fast Show, Does My Bum Look Big in This? and As She Was Known, Insecure Woman, and then the book, Jeffrey had the good grace to say to me, he said, you know what? I told Paul and Charlie... Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson, you know, who the producers sort of next rung down of producers and the main guys from the show, Mm. not to let you do that because I thought it was a bloke show and that you were just doing bits and that it wouldn't hit with the audience. And he went, shows how wrong I was. Because um, as they said in the reunion show the other day, does my bum look big? And this is probably the most enduring catchphrase from the show. Yes. Um, So thank you, Jeffrey, Mm. R.I.P., It gave me status and, you know, people always say to people who aren't in our industry, oh, when was the moment you know you'd, you know, you'd cracked it? And you think there is no moment. I dare say even 
Daniel Craig doesn't think I've cracked it. He knows he won't have to audition again, but he won't have a feeling of that's it, I've cracked it. Because he'll only have to be on the train with one person going, oh, wait a minute, you the guy from Homeland? <laughs> or, um, wait a minute, which one are you? Remind me what I've seen you in. You know, you only need that yeah. to be brought down to reality. But I did definitely get a feeling when that book was so successful and I got recognition for the Fast Show, I thought, okay, I know I've reached the next level. Mm. I know that I've gone from, sorry, who? What are you going to do? Oh, no, thanks. Uh, to, all right, I've earned my place in the room. I'm not suddenly going to get offered everything and I'm not, I'm not suddenly going to be having my name in lights on Broadway, but I know that I've reached the point of respect from my peers, which I suppose is what I wanted above all else. Yeah. And money. Um, <laughs> but as you well know, you can't do anything unless you're kind of a few of our friends. You can't really do anything. You hope things you do are successful, but the best you can hope for is that your peers and people you respect will go, oh, that was good. I saw that. That was funny. Mm. Now, who cares if the pizza delivery guy knows who you are. I don't mean I don't care about them, but what I mean is it's your peers going, oh, I saw that. That was really funny. That was a good idea. Yeah. So, yes, that was the moment I thought, finally, I've earned my place at the club. Mm. And then that's also led on to you then taking that title and turning it into the show you've been doing that you did in Edinburgh last year. Yeah, well, the thing is, because my um, parents were so very, but particularly my mother, were so very, very and incessantly critical for my entire life about my weight. That's how I originally came up with Does My Bum Look Big in This? And then when I decided to write a show uniquely about my relationship with my mother, but also about mothering in general, mm. now that my children are grown up, it seemed to make sense to call the show Does My Mum Loom Big in This? Mm -hmm. Which I will be touring again in 2021, because I think... The relationship one has with one's mother is probably, well, I mean, all the books say it is the most important and influential. Hello, I can speak. I'll put my <laughs> teeth back in. The most influential relationship of your life. And it will inform so much about how you go about the world. Mm. And my mother was a, I mean, looking back, I think my mother probably was mentally ill, but because she was privileged and educated and posh, frankly, mm. and had money, it didn't come to light in the way that it would have done. She'd have probably come to the attention of social services if things had been more reduced for us in other ways. Mm. Um, but she was very, very aggressive, very critical, very funny, but incredibly mean to me. And... Yes, I mean, one of my favourites, she said I was about eight when I began to get plump. And the weird thing is, if you look at the photographs, I'm not even that fat. I'm not one of those kids where you're going, bloody hell. Mm. And uh, she says, right, Arabella won't be having supper tonight because she's fat. Oh, Lord. And I was like, but, Mum, I'm hungry. And she said, good, that's good for you. Hunger is good, eating is bad. Oh, my word. And uh, so the show, there's a lot of those stories. Yes. But then... And I, one of the, um, you may know the wonderful comedian, Brenda Gould Hooley, she came up to me and saw the show and she said, that show is a proper feminist show. And I was really pleased because I then go on to talk. I mean, it makes it sound like it's a misery memoir. It's not. The first <laughs> half is about 50 minutes and it's all about 
those stories. And in the second half, I make a joke by saying, so now I'm going to tell you about me as a mother and you won't be surprised to hear that I have got everything right and I've never put a foot wrong. (laughs) And so the arc I do is I put everything into context. My mother was a mother in the 1960s with absolutely no help, no guidance. And the idea, whatever class you were, that you'd have said, I am struggling. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel totally at sea here would have been out of the question. Yes. And, you know, my mother had been crazily overeducated to be then expected to be a diplomat's wife and do no more than look nice in a cocktail dress and not make a fuss. Never say what they think about anything. Well, no, she was expected to be sort of witty and entertaining and bright, Mm. but not to be saying, well, fuck that, or I don't want to do this, or Jesus Christ, it's hard having four children and absolutely no help from your husband. And I mean, I think other women would have probably not given her much truck. I mean, so, I mean, you know, they were, my mother's generation were the first kind of, they were the ones who latched on to Jermaine Greer and Betty Friedan. Mm -hmm. And that was their kind of, I was thinking about it yesterday, the feminine mystique and these, these lifelines, these books that were, but they, there was no voice. I mean, now, whatever class and level of education and level of money you had, you would be able to say, look, I'm struggling and I don't feel like I'm a good mother or, You'd have support groups. There wouldn't be some sort of stigma attached to it. My mother was uniquely cut out not to be a mother. Mm. She was absolutely not equipped for it. The person she wanted me to be, and I I tell this joke in the show, was her favourite pupil at my school, where my mother was a teacher, which was Emma Thompson. Uh, And for my mother, Emma Thompson was the benchmark she thought she was just perfect and to make matters worse it turns out my mother was fucking well right (laughs) (laughs) she she was right yes turns out emma thompson is perfect she is perfect Uh, in every possible way oh so maybe she was right about everything oh gosh what that i was fat and annoying Mm. um mm, i think so thanks oh my god it turns out my mother was right (laughs) well um i'm gonna put your wonderful book into the time capsule. It's going into the writing desk. It's all working out so beautifully. Everything's going to be in that writing desk. It'll be an extra little joy, won't it? You'll find the time capsule and think, wait a minute, there's only four things in here. Uh, And then you go, no, open the thing, look in all the wee drawers and you'll see my ruby ring, my bracelets, my book, and you'll go, tell you what, this is Arabella Weir's time capsule. I can tell you that much. (laughs) So what's the last thing? And I hope it fits into a writing desk. Now, this is the one that's supposed to be, I've struggled with this. This is the annoying one. Yeah, it could be something that is annoying about yourself or that has happened to you that you think is unjust. Oh, Jesus, how long have you got for that? I know. When you look at it in those terms of things happening to you that you think was, well, that wasn't fair. The story of your mother just saying you can't have your supper because you're fat, that does sort of qualify, Mm. but... I think I might put marriage. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's an unrealistic concept, isn't it? Yes, you're talking to a man who's been married since forty ni- years, nineteen eighty-one. So nearly forty years, thirty-nine years. Yes, I think it's definitely. I speak as someone who's been a single mother for ten years mm. to two people. It is most definitely the ideal. It's just not the easiest to play out. It's absolutely a good idea, not to say a necessary idea, to 
bring up children with the person you made them with. But I think I've now decided I approve of arranged marriages because somebody who knows you, a bunch of people who know you really, really well, <laughs> have scoped out this person and they've gone, no, 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 that person is going to end up voting, in my case, Tory. I don't mean I voted Tory, but what I mean is, let's say, for example, and they go, she'll never tolerate that. It's not going to work. Or look at him. He's going to be a real disciplinarian with the children and she won't be having that. So in my ideal, if I could do my life again, I'd be doing, I'd live in a commune, (laughs) but with separate kitchens and bring up, you know, that expression, it takes a village. Uh, Because I have been, it was possible to be a single parent. And I mean that both physically, geographically and emotionally, Mm. because I have wonderful, wonderful friends, most of whom are my children's, erstwhile godparents. So my children have been brought up by me and my closest friends. Mm. And there's a group of them, you know, that's not just one or two. There's a sort of handful of them. And they have in different ways influenced my children's lives. Mm. So, you know, maybe it's a harem I need. Yeah. Um, Although I think a harem was created, you won't be surprised to hear, by a bloke to satisfy different needs. (laughs) but I bet if it's a harem and all the kids get on, then that's great too. But a commune does work, doesn't it? The idea of, of a group of people. Well, I'm not sharing a bathroom, thank you very much. Oh, right. No, no, I want enough. a posh commune. Mm. We've each got we've got shared living spaces. No, I don't mind sharing the kitchen, actually, but I want my own bathroom and my own bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's really, I just want to live in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Could you please turn down the covers? I want my ensuite, and then I want to come down, see people in the bar... I recently had a holiday with two couples. They're younger than me, so their kids were there. And they're very close friends. And it was a very grand house because one of them had, you know, hired it and it was very nice indeed. Mm. And I thought, yes, this is the nice... You can you can be on your own when you want to be on your own. I suppose really what I'm saying is I'm headed for Denim... What's it called? Dedham Hall. What's the place where actors all go? <laughs> Denham. It's called Denham Hall, but I think we call it Dedham Hall. Right, yes. And then I can sit all day chatting to Ian McShane and, <laughs> and Lulu um, and saying, oh, yes, do you remember? You see, I was going to be in that series and um, blew me if they didn't cast... Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson. Well, it wouldn't have been a series if it was Emma Thompson, wouldn't it? <laughs> you won't be surprised to hear that Emma and I have not been up for the same parts. Oh, really? I don't okay. think there's ever been a day in which people have gone... Now, should we have Emma Thompson or Arabella Weir? She'd eclipsed me long ago. When we were teenagers, trust me, I was ruling the roost. But um, no, I don't think in our professional lives anyone's ever gone, I don't know, Arabella Weir or Emma Thompson? (laughs) (laughs) The very idea. The very idea. Yes. Yes, I know. Another extremely pretty girl that Emma and I were both at school with said to me once... uh, I was sort of going, oh, I want a boyfriend. I must have been about 14, 15. She was the prettiest girl at school and everybody knew that. Mm. And then she said, oh, what about Jamie? The whole room went, Jamie, Jamie, he's really unattractive. And would you go out with him? And she said, well, obviously I wouldn't go out with him, but he's fine for you. (laughs) Oh, no. That's my career. That's my career with Emma Thompson. It's not good enough for Emma Thompson You've been stung so many times with these these friendly barbs. Oh, yeah, but it's all grist to the comedy mill. Yeah, and it's worked a treat. Where would comedy be without mishap? 
Where would it be without marriage? Yes, that's true. Yeah. If you've got humour in your marriage. I mean, I've got best friends that I've had as long as you've been married, longer. Um, and I, I suppose they're marriages of a sort. You know, they've been my best friends since we met at school when we were 11. That's 50 years. Um, maybe I'm just saying marriage isn't for me. Yes. But I wouldn't put my wedding ring in the time capsule because my wedding ring was my mother's wedding ring. And she gave it to me on my wedding day because my then, well, about to be husband said, uh, maybe this is a tale of things to come. He went, am I, am I supposed to have got a ring? Oh, no. And I went, I, I think that was the idea. So my mother said, oh, darling, have mine. And I went, oh, well, let's hope our marriage is as successful as yours and dad's. And it wasn't. <laughs> no, a very good omen. Uh, it's a beautiful ring, though. It's an Elizabethan. So uh, I'm keeping that, not putting that in the time capsule. No. But I don't think I'd put my marriage in the time capsule. I think I might just put the concept of it. Okay. All right. That's fine. Let's put it in there. Let's lock it away. And then next time people meet in a pub and they quite fancy each other, they say, hey, do you want to spend a bit of your life with me? See how it goes. One guy who turned out to be an absolute plonker, but he did have a very good opening line. He said to me, he was sort of clearly trying to chat me up, and then he went, so how do you think we'll break up? <laughs> and I thought that was pretty witty. Yeah, uh, that's good. Uh, and very, very badly, as it turned out, because he was an epic plonker. But uh, <laughs> he was quite witty. He was quite funny. All right, well, there we are. We've... Uh... We've got everything in the time capsule. Arabella, it's been it's been really gorgeous talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been very nice to see you. I know the listeners can't, but we can see each other. We can. We can see each other. Are you going to do another Edinburgh Festival? Um, I hope so. I hope there is another Edinburgh Festival. Well, exactly. My next live show is going to be called, wait for it, it's a lovely double entendre. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, sorry, I'm having terrible cramp. Oh, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> spare a thought. I've been sitting uncomfortably. Um, my next show is called Fucking Men. Do you see what I've done there? I do. Do you do. see what I've done there? Right, we're all going to book tickets now. Book now, 2021. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Arabella Weir. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or, in fact, wherever you usually get your podcasts. If you had the time, we'd be grateful if you would rate us and leave a small review. That'd be lovely. Thank you. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time... You take the high road, and I'll take the low road, and you know what? You'll be higher up than me. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.